So this semester, we're going to look at the letter, Paul's letter to the Galatians. Paul was really one of the most important people in the early church. Um, and this is actually one of his very earliest letters. So it's a great way to understand what the first Christians thought about Jesus and what they thought was most important to know about who Jesus was and what he did. And one of the ways that you get at that is to see what made the early Christians really angry. I don't know if you know this or not, but if you get angry, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It may actually be a very helpful thing for you to figure out what is really ultimate in your life. It actually can be helpful when you're thinking about other people that you know. What makes somebody angry is almost always connected to what is ultimate in their life. Something that really, really matters to them can often be determined by figuring out what makes them angry. And this letter to the Galatians is without a doubt the angriest letter in the New Testament. The angriest letter. Now, I don't know about y'all, but how can you tell when somebody's angry? You ever look in your inbox, you know, in your mail program, and you see, you know, a subject uh, line that's all caps? I hate when I get those. <laughs> and it's like, uh-oh, I've done something. It's not an advertisement. It's from somebody I know, and it's all caps. Um, you know, there, there are certain signs in written communication in our day and age that people are angry, and uh, that was one of them, I think. In Paul's day, the way that you know he's angry is the way he starts this letter. Here's an interesting thing, and I'm going to talk about this tonight. In every single letter that the Apostle Paul writes that is part of the New Testament, in every single one of them, he starts out thanking God for the people that he's writing to. Every single one except Galatians. Furthermore, in every single letter that the Apostle Paul writes in the New Testament, there are quite a few of them, he ends up praising or commending his readers for something. And here's what you got to know. Some of the people that Paul writes to are doing crazy things, like really way out there, things that are really not good at all. And he still finds something to thank them for, to praise them for. But when we get to the letter of Galatians, we get to an angry letter. And that's actually a helpful thing, because by looking at this angry letter, we actually get a clue into what is most important to the Apostle Paul, to the early church, to the early Christians. You have, through this letter, the ability to find out what people within one generation of Jesus living and dying, what they thought was worth getting mad about. So let's read. Galatians chapter 1, we will start with the first verse, and we'll read the first nine verses tonight. This is God's word. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace and to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished 
that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. That word gospel literally means good news. So you're turning to a different good news. Not that there really is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel, the good news of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, and he means previously preach to you, let him be accursed. The Greek word there, anathema. As we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That means let him be damned. Strong words. Strong words. Let's pray together and then we're going to dig into why Paul is so angry and why that's so important for us tonight. Lord, we do thank you that you don't, that you don't just mince words, but when things matter, you speak plainly and clearly to us. We pray, Lord, that we would be as passionate about the true gospel as your apostle, Paul. That these words tonight would challenge us, encourage us, humble us, and make us bold for you and your gospel. Send your spirit to help us open our hearts, not just to understand, but to embrace your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So why Galatians? And then why is Paul so angry? And then what is this gospel that he thinks has been perverted? That's what we're going to look at tonight. Three simple things. The first, why Galatians? Well, in the history of the West, there is probably no more important book than the book of Galatians, the letter to the Galatians. Certainly, the time of the Reformation, you know about the Reformation, I guess, because you're college students, you're educated people. The Reformation, Martin Luther, um, Galatians was really the key book. Martin Luther, who was one of the key figures, obviously, in the Reformation, you know, he begun by coming to understand the grace of the gospel. For a long time, he wrestled with how could a righteous, holy God be pleased by people who fall so short of his glory, who fall so short of living the way he wants them to live. He didn't understand how the gospel, the idea that God was righteous, could be good news. And so he tried all kinds of things, the way the church taught him you should live and the things you should do so that you'd be sure that God loved you. He tried all those things and it didn't help. Finally, it was through a passage in Paul's letter to the Romans that he came to understand grace. But Galatians was where he really soaked in the gospel, and it really took strong roots in his life. He said at one point um, that Galatians was to him like his wife, <laughs> like he had married the letter to the Galatians. It had become so important to him. He worked on his commentary to the Galatians. A commentary is basically where a, a Bible scholar writes about what the various verses mean, bit by bit as they go through, right? And he worked on his commentary to the Galatians for his entire life. As a matter of fact, when Martin Luther died, he said that there are really only several of his writings that he thought should live on beyond his death, and his commentary on Galatians was one of them. If you want to understand 
the revolution that transformed the West at the time of the Reformation, you need to understand what Galatians is about. But that wasn't the last time that God used the letter of Galatians. Um, in the 18th century, there's a tremendous revival movement. A revival is basically a time where sleepy Christians wake up to the goodness of God's grace and where those who don't know who Christ is are intrigued and begin to wake up to the gospel and the goodness of God's grace. And there was this tremendous revival connected with people like John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, maybe you've heard some of these names. It was a revival only in England and the UK, also over here, down into the Caribbean. It was really quite a widespread movement. And it was really this letter to the Galatians, not just the letter to the Galatians, but Luther's commentary on the Galatians that really, you know, at least humanly speaking, brought about that revival. And the way it started, basically, this group of college students at Oxford, they called themselves, they didn't actually call themselves the Methodists, they called themselves the Holy Club. It's a nice name for a small group. You know, they got together and they basically were reading this book by a guy named Jeremy Taylor, um, trying to figure out how to live lives that would please God. And they did all kinds of, of pretty intense things. Like they would sleep with no blanket on the cold stone floor in the winter, hoping that they could beat their bodies into submission and that God would love them more. They did all kinds of things, trying to care for the poor, trying to do all these sorts of things, praying all night, reading the Bible, and yet none of them could come to a place of peace with God. And one of the things that they began to do, they started to meet some Moravian missionaries, these German people who had been very soaked in Martin Luther's Galatians. And one of the things that these Moravians told them is, you guys should actually read Martin Luther. And so they would sit around in, a, in like basically like a dorm room, and they would read out loud. Somebody would read Martin Luther on Galatians. And one day, as they were doing this, this guy, William Holland, became the first of this little group to get converted. And I love the way he wrote about this. He says, as he read, as this one of his friends read, he said, there came such a power over me as I cannot well describe. My great burden fell off in an instant. My heart was so filled with peace and love that I burst into tears. I almost thought I saw our Savior. My companions perceiving me so affected, fell on their knees and prayed. And when I afterwards went out into the street, I could scarcely feel the ground I trod upon. So many testimonies about the power of Galatians, because in Galatians, through the anger of Galatians, you get at the thing that matters the most. It's really a book for people who think they understand Christianity, but have lost their joy. As we get into this letter, you'll find that what's happened is that the Apostle Paul had come through this area. He never intended to stop in this, in this Galatians area. He never planned to stop there. He got sick. We don't know exactly what happened. Maybe he had a problem with his eyes because later he makes mention of that in chapter 4. But he preached the gospel while he was laid up there. And the gospel took root in these people's lives. They were filled with joy. It transformed their lives. And then Paul left. And then some other people came in, some other teachers that began to teach something different. And Paul hears about it and writes this letter because he's so concerned with what has happened to his dear friends. 
And he says that they have lost their joy. He says that now in their community where once there was love and, and, and rich care for one another, now they're biting and devouring one another. I don't know if you've ever been part of a church or a Christian community that you felt was just kind of nasty, petty, people biting and devouring, gossiping, trying to cut each other down. That's what happens in a church or a Christian community when they lose the joy of the message of grace. And it happens all the time. I bet if we surveyed people in this room, you, there would be people here that have stories of being in churches like that. Maybe some of you have not even really wanted to be sort of still following Christianity because of experiences you've had with Christians who are just so bitter and mad and angry. And what Galatians tells us is that there's always a connection between your relationships with other people and the way you understand God's relationship with you. Those are always connected. And if there's biting and devouring going on, if people are cutting each other down, it generally is because they've lost the joy and the security that comes from knowing that God's grace has made them beautiful in his sight. And if that's not something that is rooted deep in your heart, it will always spill over into your relationships with other people. That's what the heart of Galatians it's not just about head knowledge and making sure you can spit out the right answers on a test about theology. What it's saying is what you believe about God and how you're accepted or not accepted by him will inevitably spill over into every area of your life. And Paul is mad because this is serious stuff. It really matters. Why is Paul so angry? Why is he so angry? Like I said, this is the only letter where he doesn't begin with a, I thank God for you whenever I think of you, or, you know, I, I, I'm so proud of you and the way you've done this and done that, and there's none of that in this letter. And, and to help you understand how significant that is, the letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians, the church at Corinth, the church at Corinth was crazy. They were doing all kinds of things. Literally, they were gathering together for uh, communion, and they were breaking out into orgies. Did you know that that's in the Bible? That's in the Bible. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians. Not only that, they were engaging in behavior that even the pagans, even the people outside of the church, thought that what the Christians were doing was scandalous. And Paul says it's even been reported, you know, that there's somebody there who's basically sleeping with his mother-in-law, and everybody in the church thinks it's great. And the people outside of the church thinks it's, thinks it's insane. Even those people, when Paul writes them a letter, he commends them. He thanks God for them. So what's going on in Galatia has to be pretty serious. Because Paul is more angry with the Galatians than he is with the Corinthians. That's pretty astonishing. Because I, I know in our day and age, if I held up two Christian groups, I said, look at this group. Whenever they get together and their prayer meetings turn into orgies, you think that's a problem? And then there's this group over here, you know, if you, if you basically said, here's the gospel, 
they, they've, they've turned, you know, if, they, if there basically are three points to the gospel, which I'll explain in a second, they've switched the order of two of them. They still hold to the three points. They've just switched the order of two of the points. Which do you think is worse? Paul says, this is worse. Not that this is good, okay? Not that the communion turning into orgies is a good thing. But what people believe about the gospel actually turns out to be the ultimate thing that makes him the most angry. And that's pretty interesting because I don't think that's the kind of Christians we have today. We live in, in a world where we just hate to say anybody's wrong about anything, right? And you go to a school where sort of institutionally they've taken that position. You know, I've been doing campus ministry at Belmont for 19 years, and it's always been interesting um, when students come visit and want to check out Belmont, and their parents ask you, is it a Christian university, and what do they mean by that? And I say, well, you know, to answer that question, I kind of have to tell you a story, because I have to talk about where they came from and sort of where they're at and what kind of trajectory they're on. It's not an easy question to answer, is it? I find almost every student I know, Belmont is either more Christian or less Christian than they thought it was going to be, right? And one of the things that's happened in the last few years, right, when they had the whole controversy about the soccer coach that got fired, basically they officially decided that this is their position. Anything that is professed, that means believed by anybody who calls themselves a Christian, is within the framework of what it means to be Christian at Belmont. Paul would not agree with that. I just have to tell you. Paul would not agree with that. Paul would not say, just because you say you're a Christian and you believe this, great, everything's wonderful. Now, I, I, here's the problem, of course. What are the things that matter? And what are you know, more superficial things, right? But we live in a day and age that definitely sort of leans more towards don't, don't hassle people about what they believe. If people are living in ways that are unloving and mean-spirited, well, we should call them out on that. But you really shouldn't interfere with what people believe, particularly about God and about religion. Like, you just don't, don't go there, right? So the letter of Galatians is actually a pretty challenging one to the day and age in which we live. And it will raise for you, I hope, the question about what do you believe is most important and why? Because as you get into this letter, here's what you find. Here's what you find. Paul is angry, and so he asserts his authority. And that's pretty interesting, because authority in our day and age is a very interesting question. Now, most of you have taken freshman seminar, right? My understanding of freshman seminar is it's supposed to be about helping you clarify why you believe what you believe. Philosophers call this epistemology. Epistemology means how do you know what you know? And there are various answers in our day and age to the question of epistemology. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of churches, a lot of Christian groups, the basis for epistemology is just don't ask questions, kid. Believe what we say. There are even certain church, Christian churches that even define faith as believing what the church teaches you. That's actually the official Roman Catholic position. I'm not saying that all Catholics believe that, but that's the official position. But for a lot of people, you know, they, I find they've, they've sort of grown up in churches where they were never encouraged to ask questions, where they've been made to think that having any kinds of doubts or questions means you're, you're not really a Christian or can't be a Christian. I think that's tragic because 
the Bible is full of the testimonies of people who believe in God and have a lot of questions and struggle with things. Matter of fact, Mary, what do we get? need to turn that off or no? We're okay. Um, Mary, right, the mother of Jesus, when the angel comes to her and says, you're going to have a baby, you remember what she says? We just went through this at church, maybe. Yeah. She says, how can this be? I'm still a virgin. I love that the one who, in many circles, and many people would say in the Christian history, is sort of one of the people who's like held up as being kind of the, the paragon, the paradigm, the ultimate in trusting God. And really, she's presented that way in the Bible. And yet, the first thing she says is a question, is a doubt. She's not gullible. Faith and gullibility are not the same thing in the Bible's eyes. So the authority question matters. And it's not enough for Christians just to say, don't ask questions. Just believe what we say. But for a lot of people, they've come from churches where that was never encouraged. Another example is the Bereans, this group in Acts. You ever read about the Bereans? The Bereans were people, it says in the book of Acts, that when they heard Paul preach, they searched the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said agreed with the scriptures. And you know what the book of Acts says about them? They were the most noble of all people for doing that. So the Bible encourages you to ask questions and to think about why do you believe what you believe? Now, Paul here makes some astonishing claims. He claims to be an apostle. An apostle is somebody who has been commissioned by God to speak on his behalf. And you may think, well, that's, that's pretty proud and boastful of this guy to claim that. But he doesn't claim that in isolation. He claims that along with another group of apostles and he was recognized this way by the early church. It's not something he just took upon himself. I would also would say he's not claiming that to boast about it here. He's claiming that because for him to come against this false teaching, he needs to deal with the authority question. Because there are some teachers that had come after Paul had left. Not only were they saying the gospel that Paul taught you is not the real gospel, they were also saying that Paul himself didn't know what he was talking about. And so there's this two-pronged attack on Paul, and he has to assert that he's an apostle. Now, again, I say, you know, I would say for a lot of people, I don't know if you realize how much authority and what you believe, those questions are always linked together. In other words, you know, the university has different answers that they would give you sometimes to the questions of why do you believe what you believe? You know, in some classes or in some settings, some schools, it may be, you know, you have a right to believe what has been scientifically proven. And there are other things that aren't really proven. They're just more in the realm of ideas and theories. And, you know, I'm not sure where you're at with all that. But what I want to say is, in your time in college, you need to think about why do you believe what you believe. That question has to be thought through. The Christian answer to that is that God has spoken. God has spoken. You can't get away from that when you come to the Bible, when you come to understand what Christianity has historically understood. God has spoken. 
Now, I would say the reason I believe that is because God made the good evidences convincing to my heart. There's no way that I can convince you that the Bible is God's word without the Spirit of God working in you. It is a supernatural thing, but it's not a supernatural thing that goes against good evidences, but it does go beyond. But here's what you have to wrestle with right away. Paul, Paul, the apostle, writes this letter. Now, some people say, you know, well, these letters, they just kind of floated around for a while, and eventually people began to revere them because they were old, and then eventually they become the Bible. That's not true at all. That's not true at all. We could sit down and talk about that over coffee, and I could show you why that's just a bunch of bunk. Paul writes this letter fully aware of his status as an apostle. And there are other places where he asserts that as well. The apostles knew that they were speaking on God's behalf. That's why it's a big deal that he says this. It's a big deal, the authority question. Well, why is Paul so angry? And what's this, what's this uh, gospel that he's so zealous to make sure they get right? Well, here's what's interesting. The first words in this letter, look at chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle, not from men. Now, actually, you know, the, the ESV translation is what I'm reading from. Not all English translations do this, but I love the ESV, English Standard Version, gets this right. The first word, after Paul says his name, Paul, an apostle, the first word in the Greek is ouk, which means not. So what Paul says here is Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man. In other words, I'm not an apostle because people voted on me. I'm an apostle because God gave me this commission. And woe am I if I fail to exercise that responsibility faithfully. Now, again, I think what's interesting in our day and age, we don't like to say not. We don't say to say no. We don't like to disagree with people or be disagreeable. The first thing, though, the first thing Paul says in the letter to the Galatians is not. No. Which means what you think about authority matters. And if you're wrong about it, the consequences can be disastrous. Again, this is so out of step with modern thinking, right? Again, everybody says, well, you've got the right to, to decide what you believe about religion and about God. But Paul says, no, if there is such a thing as an apostle commissioned by God who's been entrusted with the good news. That's why it's so important to understand the gospel literally means good news. It's not, hey, I've got some ideas that I want to run by you guys. I've been thinking about God and what he must be like. Let me throw this out there for your for your uh, opinions. That's not at all. No, something happened. And I'm here to tell you news about what happened and what it means. And it's either right or it's wrong. And it's connected to his authority as an apostle. You get that, right? Truth matters. And again, lurking, lurking behind truth is always the question of, well, who says? Paul takes that issue on right at the beginning here. Paul says, and Paul is an apostle commissioned by God. 
And again, I think college is, is a time when you've got to wrestle with those things. And, and in our day, you know, it's interesting. There's so many Christians with so many different ideas. And, and to even begin to sort your way through that, you have to at least be open to the idea that there are some things that don't qualify as good news. Even if people, well-meaning people, claim them. And you might say, well, what about you? And I'll say, here's what I'll just say. In RUF, it's our general practice to go through books of the Bible verse by verse. Why? Because we believe this is God's word. And the best way to understand what God thinks and what matters most is to read it in context and to go through every verse and not skip any. It's one of the ways that sort of maybe me picking and choosing what I think matters most gets eliminated from the process somewhat. If we read the Bible together regularly, the things that matter most will be repeated over and over again. And Galatians will get that. So we're going to go through this book, this whole book, right? So what is the gospel that Paul so zealous to defend? We'll, we'll end with this tonight. Go back up to the beginning of this letter. Verse 3, it's interesting. Paul has these greetings like this, grace to you and peace. And actually in his letters, he usually tips off what he's going to be talking about in the grace to you section. I know maybe you've read through his letters and you just kind of skip over that part sometimes. I know I, I used to do that. Um, there's a guy who did his PhD just on these greetings in Paul's letters and connecting them to what the rest of the letter ends up talking about. And actually that works out really well here in Galatians. In verses 3, 4, and 5, you actually get the heart of what Paul is zealous for them to know. And it's this. Grace and peace come to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. If you want to know what is this good news, that's the good news. Because in verse 6 he says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He just, he just basically gave you the Cliff Notes version of the gospel in verses 3, 4, and 5 before he says, I'm astonished you're turning from it. So let's look at that. Well, what is the heart of the gospel? The first is verse 4. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us. If you want a, a, a good little shorthand way to think about Christianity, Christianity is this, God to the rescue. God to the rescue. Christ came to deliver us. Now, there's a lot behind that. First of all, it means that you need rescuing. It means that the problem with mankind, as it relates to God, is more than just a need for a path. We have more than a need for some instruction. God didn't just shout down from heaven how we're to live. Jesus came so that we could be delivered. We needed to be rescued, which means the problem with mankind is more radical than most people think. We needed a rescue. We didn't just need a helping hand. You know, sometimes people, you know, tell sort of different illustrations to try and explain what it means to become a Christian. Sometimes I've heard people tell this kind of illustration of like basically you're out in the ocean and you're going down, you're drowning and in the gospel, God throws you a life preserver, but you've still got to take it. 
But I would tell you that's a distortion of the gospel. The rescue that you get here is not an opportunity for you to rescue yourself. The rescue that's talked about here is more akin to not going down for the third time and being drowning. It's, some, it's more akin to you're already on the bottom of the ocean floor dead. And what Jesus does in the gospel is he dives in, he grabs you, he picks you up off the bottom of the ocean floor, he breathes new life into you. The rescue that Jesus does in the gospel is radical. It's radical. And if your understanding of Christianity is not, I've been rescued by God's grace, I've been delivered by God's grace, then it's no wonder that the gospel is not very joyous. If you talk to somebody or you know somebody that basically thinks the gospel is something that they did themselves, then it's pretty hard to be really excited about that. All I can tell you is, you know, I'm a great lover of traditional hymns, you know, all the classic hymns, and there really aren't any good hymns about, Lord, thank you for giving me an opportunity to accept you in my life. There's lots of hymns about, thank you for saving me. You know, if you want to just study what Christians have sung for 2,000 years, you'll find there's pretty clear consensus on this. And that's what Paul says here. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us. The gospel is God to the rescue. How? More specifically, by Jesus giving himself for our sins. So at the heart of the gospel is this idea of substitution. It's been well said that man substituted himself for God in the garden, in sin. In sin, we basically substitute ourselves for God. But in the gospel, God substitutes himself for us. As great hymn writer Horatius Bonar said, Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, I stake my whole eternity. Another's life, another's death. The heart of Christianity is God rescues sinful men and women by substituting Jesus who comes and lives the life they couldn't live and dies the death that they deserve to die. So to rescue through substitution, Christianity is about resting in the work that God has done. Why does God rescue us? Well, it says here at the end of verse 4, according to the will of our God and Father. Now, this is really good news tonight. It may be the kind of thing you're like, okay, I don't like that. Whenever the Bible talks about God's will, then that just seems like, you know, we're just robots and who can resist his will. But here's why that's good news. You don't have to clean yourself up to impress God to qualify for his rescue. He rescues because he wants to rescue. You don't have to qualify for it. And when you understand how great your need is, that will be the best news you've ever heard. And here's, here's, here's the heart of what I want to say, the last bit here. I put this quote on here. It may seem like a little long quote, but it's, it's worth reading. Gresson Machen, great um, professor, he was at Princeton seminary in the early 1900s and eventually left there and started a seminary called Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, which is where our old intern Chase is even right now. 
And he has a great way of, of saying this. Basically, like I said, there are three points to the gospel in Galatians. And the, the, Paul says the order goes this way, and the, the false teachers basically just switch the order of two of the points. But that's enough for Paul to say it's a different gospel. Would you like to know what those three points are and what the right order is? Here it is. It's in this quote. The central point, Machen says, at issue between Paul and the Judaizers, that's the, a name that the false teachers generally are called today, concerned merely the order of three steps. Paul said, one, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Two, at that moment you're saved. And then three, immediately you proceed to keep the law of God. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commands. So that's the three things. Believe on the Lord Jesus. You're saved, delivered, and then you should live a life of obedience to him. The Galatian teacher said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep the law of God the best you can. And then three, you're saved. So here's, what you, here's what's going on. Both of them believe that they need grace to be saved. Both of them believe that the law of God matters and need to be obeyed. Both of them believe that God is God, that Jesus came in the flesh. Both of them can recite the Apostles' Creed. But Paul says that what they're teaching is not a gospel, merely because the order of steps two and three have been reversed. And you might think, gosh, that seems like nitpicking. <laughs> seems like nitpicking. But I think as we go through this Galatians letter, you'll understand why that makes all the difference in the world. And to say to somebody, believe on Jesus, try your very best to obey the law of God, and then you'll be saved, is not good news at all. It's the worst possible news. Particularly if you begin to understand your heart and how difficult and how anti the law of God your heart really is. The only thing that can change your heart is the grace of God and the gospel. And it has to come to you for you to change. It has to come to you for you to change. So while it may seem like nitpicking, <laughs> Paul says it's such a difference that it makes it no gospel at all. Now, he's going to dig into this and explain this. He's going to show how this works itself out in relationships. And I hope you'll come along for the ride. Uh, the last thing I'll point out is when Paul begins to talk about the real gospel of rescue according to God's will by Jesus substituting himself for us, it leads him to a doxology. Verse 5, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Theology should never just be about getting the right thoughts in your head. I know for a lot of people, theology is even like a, almost like a bad term. Theology just means a word about God. That's what it literally means. And actually, everybody in this room is a theologian. The question is, does your theology, does your understanding about God, who he is and what he's done and what he's like, does it actually conform to reality? Right? That's the question. And Paul says, when you begin to understand this theology, it should lead you to doxology because he is the one who gets all the glory in the true gospel of the rescue by substitution of Jesus Christ. So that's how we're going to end. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing the doxology. Yeah? So let me pray and then we'll sing.